Welcome to Keep Taking Ground, the saxophone podcast. I'm your host, Jesse Ryan, and we're back with season number two. I'm so excited to bring you 10 new conversations with award-winning and in-demand saxophonists from around the world and across jazz and contemporary styles. This episode is a really special one. I have a special guest. He's the brand manager for P. Moriat North America. He's a graduate of Moorhead University. He's a real specialist playing all saxophones, clarinets, uh, flutes, and bassoons. And he's also recently retired after 21 years of service in the US Armed Force. He's performed with the likes of Jimmy Dorsey Orchestra, Bobby Watson, Los Angeles Philharmonic, and Donnie McCarson, to name a few. It's my pleasure to welcome Jeremiah True to the podcast. Jeremiah, how are you doing? I'm well, Jesse, and thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Man, I want to mention off the bat that when I started this podcast, I wanted to do it because I was planning all sorts of projects during the pandemic, and I realized that most of my projects were sort of focused on me, and I wanted to create a project where I could focus on one of the communities that I was connected to. And so I thought I can give back to the saxophone community, which was sort of the impetus of, of you know, the podcast. I was passionate about musical development, not from the, the perspective of what you do technically and musically, not like a tutorial sort of podcast, but sort of the ideas and the lives of the people practicing that really support all of the creative work that we do and those are the kind of conversations i wanted to 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 have and so i started the podcast on a whim and i went hard at the first 10 conversations and i think around that time we 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 met each other Mm -hmm. and then when i decided to do season two of the podcast i reached out to you as the brand manager at p moriat interested in forming sort of some sort of collaboration and you graciously lend it your support and now p moriat north america is one of the sponsors for this season of the podcast so thank you so much for that man hey my pleasure my pleasure any any show that that you know not just doesn't just tell the story of a saxophone uh but rather serves to bring uh you know our greater community of saxophonists musicians and human beings together is you know is something that that we're happy to to support a bit if at all possible Amazing. So, so happy to have you here. And I'm excited to get into this conversation, but let's start right at the beginning. How did okay. you get the saxophone in your hand? Well, um, that would have been around 1987, 1988 in uh, Center Grove Middle School in Greenwood, Indiana. And, you know, started band in a very traditional manner, like uh, so many do here in the States, went to the instrument night. And, you know, it was the late 80s and definitely a bit of a saxophone heyday in pop music uh i mean george michael had saxophones in his tunes men at work had saxophone in their tunes um geez robert palmer had saxophones in their tunes uh just it was it was all over the place billy ocean uh jerry rafferty all of those uh, all of those folks had uh, there was saxophone all over the place and I, i just remember thinking man that's that's a really cool instrument yeah. And, you know, my, my dad didn't, my dad was and is a bass player and um, felt pretty strongly that I should play an instrument where you would actually get to play the melody. Right. So went to middle school band rental night and picked out a saxophone and rented uh, for a year. And then my parents bought me my first instrument after I'd been playing for about a year and kind of started, you know, just middle school band, high school band, and it wasn't until I was a junior in high school and met the right teacher, a uh, guy named John Richardson, uh, that kind of changed the trajectory of my life. And when I decided that, that playing the saxophone and being a musician was something I wanted to do for a living and wanted to do it the rest of my life. Amazing. No, it's become a bit of a podcast tradition to put a pin uh, in any moment where one of my guests mentions a high school, middle school, you know, music teacher, because I believe that those are the unsung heroes really of the, in, of the industry. So many people get their great foundation that really give them, um, you know, the, the platform to continue to do great things. That's right. And, you know, I had a great band director uh, named Bob Elliott, 
and he was the one that kind of initially challenged me and said, I, I think you need to, you need to find a teacher that's really going to challenge you. Mm. And so my mom started calling around and uh, got hooked up with Don Wilson Music in Lexington, Kentucky. And uh, there was a young man there named John Richardson. And so my first lesson with John, he really brought me back down to earth and to reality uh, as far as what I needed to do to, to get myself together as a musician. Great. Yeah, I, I, I just had a conversation this week with some of my students and we were talking about the importance of trusting your teachers. You know, the older you get, I feel like if you begin questioning the validity of things and you also have to sort of understand things before you accept them sometimes. And I feel like if when you're younger, when your teacher says, you know, do this this way this many times, you just can't, you just sort of do it. And so there's sort of an in, inherent trust in that type mm -hmm. of relationship when, when you're younger. Uh, so for any young saxophone players listening right now, continue to trust, you know, the, the, the guidance of your, of your teachers. Ask questions, push back where you think you need to push back. But by and large, uh, they have so much of a wider perspective that, that, than you, that trusting the advice is important. But for any older developers uh, or, or learners on the instrument, that's an area that you have to make an effort, I think, to, to, to develop because we inherently want to understand ahead of time. You know? So maybe can, can you talk a little bit about your early development a, a little bit more and how that idea of trusting teachers helped you develop good foundations? Sure. Um, you know, I, 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 you, know you, you bring up an interesting point. Um, you know, my, my wife is an educator. She is an, an elementary teacher, has been for years. And there is a fine line between teaching a concept in the abstract sense versus starting to teach a concept with one plus one is two, two plus two is four. And the why in those early stages is not nearly as important as the why in the later stages. Right. And, you know, that, that kind of harkens to uh, the apprenticeship, you know, method right. uh, that began all over the world hundreds of years ago where someone was going to be a blacksmith, someone was going to be a silversmith, a goldsmith. Mm -hmm. They started working with an apprentice and, you know, their initial tasks, their initial uh, lessons were just do this. And as they became more skilled, then they began to learn the why. Right. And that was, that was definitely, um, you know, my saxophone upbringing, um, you know, particularly when I started with John. Um, and true, I was a little, I was older, you know, I wasn't a sixth grader then, but the concept remained the same where, you know, he put the Marcel Mule 24 easy etudes, Marcel Mule scales and arpeggios in front of me. And I wanted to learn Cannibal Adderley solos. And, 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 and he was like, no, man, we're going to do this for a year. Wow. We're going to do this for a year. Here's your metronome. Here's your scales get to it and that proved to be th the beginning for me um just you know a teacher that indeed would is was more than capable and is still capable of answering the why but at that stage of my development the why is not what i needed right i needed the do this now and that particular teaching style, um, I really saw its efficacy and it didn't truly see its efficacy until much, much later when I moved to Japan and worked with a lot of middle and high school bands when I was stationed um, overseas. And they treat music very much as an apprenticeship in those early stages uh, of middle school, high school, uh, you know, lots of reps, uh, lots of memorization. You know, they start to get their 10,000 reps in very, very early. And 
you know, I would hear middle school bands that sounded amazing, <laughs> high school bands that sounded amazing. And, you know, they taught basic technique, tons and tons of air, tons and tons of air. And as I, you know, had conversations with some of the students, um, those that spoke great English, far better than my Japanese, that's for sure. Um, there wasn't a whole lot of why at that point. There was a lot of, you know, I trust sensei, whoever. Yeah. And so that trust that they had in their teacher um, manifested itself by them being absolutely stellar musicians at an early, early age. And so for me, getting that teacher that I trusted early on um, that knew when to say, hey, man, shut up and just play these scales. <laughs> he was a lot nicer about it than that but just hey play these scales and it's all going to be cool just trust me and and i did and it turns out he was right yeah that's that's great thanks so much for sharing that story i think it's absolutely important that if you're an older beginner or or maybe an intimate intermediate saxophone player or whatever you know whatever level you're at to pursue a relationship with a mentor that's a trusting one uh, and not a skeptical one because i think that inevitably inevitably uh hurts your development i think there's a difference between being a skeptic and being curious mm -hmm. uh, so that's a, a fine balance to to make there i remember hearing branford marsalis at, at his level talk about having a saxophone teacher and I'm like, why does Brownford Marsalis need a saxophone teacher? He was referencing Javi Patel, the amazing classical mm -hmm. um, you know, saxophonist. And it just goes to show at whatever level you're at, there is always going to be somebody that, even at a very basic level, you can be an accountable to for your development and have a sort of a trusting mentorship type of, of relationship. So, yeah, thanks so much for that. I want to shift the conversation a little bit and talk about your later years of mm -hmm. maybe at, at, at college and also how you got into the Navy and the work that you did there. Sure, sure. So um, when I got to college, I actually, with, with my practicing and my development, I went a little too far. <laughs> I, went, I went too far. And, um, you know, I almost flamed out uh, kind of early. Uh, just because I was trying to shed seven or eight hours a day oh. on top of classes and on top of ensembles. And I was I was also married. Uh, my wife and I have been married almost 28 years. And, um, you know, she was she was very good about saying, I think you're flaming out. And I had by that time, my first you know college saxophone teacher, a man named Eugene Norton. And I mean, when your teacher's telling you, I think you need to back off. Wow. Then you know you might be a little ate up. <laughs> and so <laughs> I indeed was at the time. And so I started at that time to to find the balance between practicing and performing and life and sometimes, you know, going for a walk, watching TV. Yeah. Um, you know, that was too much time off or not enough focus was never my problem. It was always the opposite. It was too much. Where, where I figured you, if. Where do you think that came from? I'm sorry to interrupt you, but. No, I, no problem. I, I want to just ask about that because um, where do you think that impulse to be so hyper-focused and maybe, maybe you might use the word obsessive? Mm -hmm. Definitely. Uh, where was that coming from? Was it coming from a place of, you know, was it in the environment? Was it. Mm -hmm sort of more internal thing? Was it coming from an insecurity that you were trying to, you know, let's talk about that. It was, it was, it was internal, very largely internal. And it was, it was based partly on insecurity for sure, because I was not, I did not see myself as a child prodigy, which I was not. Okay. And, you know, I, I hadn't quite developed all of the, the background knowledge of learning and pedagogy to know why quote unquote child prodigies were like they were 
Um, so I, I thought that, man, I've got years to make up. So that was part of the driving impetus is I felt behind, you know, cause I didn't really, I've been playing the saxophone since sixth grade, but I didn't really get serious until the summer before my third year of high school. So I, I felt behind and, um, you know, the other saxophone players around me at the time, um, were all very good. They were very strong. And so I, there was a desire to pull my own weight. And there was also, um, a desire. I did not, a lot of people that I went to school with would say, well, make sure you get your education degree. So you have something to fall back on. Mm-hmm. And I did have an ed, I do have an education degree and that, that was just because that's where my scholarships were, gotcha. but, but I never wanted that to be my path to me. Education is not something you fall back on. It's a calling. It's not a last resort or a plan B. Um, because, you know, it has to be something to which you're called. So I wanted to make my living, support my family by playing the saxophone, period. And so the only, you know, at that time way I could see to get there was to, you know, put my head against the proverbial wall and start slamming it. (laughs) (laughs) For sure. So it it was, it was internal. It was internal. You know, I did. I did have some insecurities, and so that's that's what kind of started me on that path. But I I course corrected probably about two years into school, you know, and realized I, I'm gonna have to back off um, a little bit on this, and I did, and then I wound up having a lot more fun, so that was good. What did that look like uh, in terms of how you organized your time? Because I, I think. At the undergraduate level, most of the students that I interact with, and even when I reflect on my own experiences, the major thing is the time management. How do mm. you organize your time to make the most of the program, to stay on top of assignments and shedding in the practice room? And so how, what did that shift look like from trying to practice from seven to eight hours a day to trying to find more balance? What does it look like then? What did change do? Sure. Uh- I never lost my uh, belief and still have it that if you want to get anything done, you've got to get up before the sun. And I still believe that, Uh, you know, unless it's like I'm deliberately sleeping in today. It's Saturday. I had a gig last night. I'm not getting up at five. So that didn't change. Um, And I still held to the belief that if it's important, you need to get it done before noon. And, and of course there were going to be classes in the afternoon or maybe there were ensembles. I'm not saying that those weren't important, Mm -hmm. but I knew that the body and soul of my, of my musical preparation had to, had to start and happen and be largely complete early in the day because there's so many things that can start to suck your time. Um, Classes, ensembles, all cru- all critical, but that could start to suck your time. So what I did in that transition is I, I still got up about the same time early and practiced early, but I didn't, I practiced and it was like, okay, I have this particular concept or this instrument I've put in my time and now I'm moving on. But before it was like, I would do my stuff and then I would keep doing my stuff and then I would keep doing my stuff and then the diminishing returns would just be washing over me. So I, you know, whatever it was, if it was learning a Charlie Parker lick on all 12 keys, or it was practicing going over the break on clarinet, you know, once I had gotten some successful reps in, that's when I knew it was time to stop and do something else. So I tried to get that shedding in early in the day so that, you know, when my school day, academic day was concluded, I was going and spending time with my spouse. You know, we were going to go take a walk. We were going to go drive over to the national park and take a hike, um, something so that I wasn't also at night wailing away in the practice room. And I also, you know, decided I probably should do homework as well. So (laughs) this is really important. And I think a lot of undergraduate students are going to get a lot of value out of this, I know so many 
incredibly talented saxophone players and musicians who for one reason or the other get burnt out as you mentioned and end up dropping out of school mm-hmm. because they're focusing so much uh in the practice room like you like you were not and not finding a more balanced approach to all of the things that they need to handle and then the train just gets derailed and they can't even pursue the thing that they initially wanted to pursue anymore so i think the the real key is about the time management uh when you're going through an undergrad program so thanks so much for sharing that i'm wondering how much of this internal focus on uh even perfection and the drive to practice for that many hours a day the drive to get up early all of those things that probably you won't hear pushed in popular culture mm-hmm. how many of those things fueled your desire to join the the, the army the air force it was the air force and you know that now that is not that pathway did not happen like one would think um in terms of 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 that and the discipline so the very very condensed reader's digest version of that journey is so my wife and i were were finishing up undergraduate and going back just a little bit um to achieve that balance one and this will figure into this part of the conversation one other key factor in achieving balance that i forgot to mention and that is i began to actively seek out as many performance venues and opportunities as i could um because i was tired of being in the practice room you know and playing one jazz band show maybe two per semester you know one symphony band per semester you know everything was always this months or weeks long prep for one performance and i wanted to play jobs i wanted to get gigs under my belt so i started seeking those out and it didn't matter if it was a country band or if i started my own i started my own combo i went to a coffee house i said we will play for free coffee and muffins and tips i don't care i just want to come in here twice a week and play tunes and they were like sure man come on uh so good vibrations coffee house in moorhead kentucky uh <laughs> doesn't exist anymore but um or or you know uh, auditioning for music theater uh cruise ships i did the ships I played in musicals. I began to seek out performance opportunities because I I wanted to put everything I practiced into performance. And so um, as my wife and I were were winding up school, um, you know, I did I did have to complete my student teaching, got my I did a music education degree and I had a um, like I said, I'd been on on the ships. I had worked summer stock musical theater. And I had a job lined up at a pretty big theater uh, near Philadelphia and was going to be union musician making union scale, which was really good. It was, I mean, it's still good, but it was it was really good, especially for a 23, 24 year old. And, you know, it was going to be a resident woodwind specialist at that theater. So every time the show changed, I was in the pit and they had a spot for us to live and so we were we were we were headed to philadelphia and it was all going to work out and then my my friend really close friend was the music director and he said i am no longer the music director i'm doing something else i'm leaving um you would still have a job here if you wanted it but something just told me that if he's leaving there's a reason And so I was like, I don't know about this. I don't know. So I kind of panicked a little bit and I thought, well, maybe I'll go back on the ships. Uh, Maybe I'll join, you know, I'll go on the road with musical. You know, I'd done those things, Um, you know, but my wife and I, we were kind of ready for that next phase of life, job, starting a family. I didn't want to be a band director. Uh, Not that there's anything wrong with it. It just, that wasn't for me. So I looked on the internet, very rudimentary internet in early 2000, you know, I had a 56 K dial up modem 
and you know, took 10 minutes for the screen to load, and I saw an opening for the Air Force Band of Flight in Dayton, Ohio. And, you know, the job was, it was pretty clear, you know, you have to be able to play in concert band, you have to be able to play in jazz band, you have to be able to double, you have to be able to play multiple styles, you have to be able to sight read, um, have a certain modicum of physical shape, be under a certain age. And I'm looking at that going, I can do that, I can do that, I can do that, I can do that. So I sent in my audition packet was invited for an in-person audition and you know that morning i sat in with a fantastic jazz band uh lead alto player you know was a north texas one o'clock guy uh there were other north texas guys in the band um you know some some juilliard folks it just just see some killer players and i'm like and i get health insurance on top of this and dental sign me up i'll raise my right hand now and so I, I was fortunate and uh, they offered me the position and took the job, went through basic training yeah. and did it for 21 years and, yeah. and loved most of it. That's incredible, man. I, I think that this is a career option that I'm seeing more and more young musicians considering because we live in a time where there are less and less options, I think to have a sustainable career in music if you're playing jazz and improvised music mm -hmm. because the, the colleges are churning out musicians you know every single year and so there's i think there, there's always been stiff competition but the world has changed so much in the last you know 20 years i i can think of a couple of young musicians in the scene who i knew who went into the to the air force band so I'm not surprised that, you know, the, the, the discipline that you developed in your undergraduate program and then the, this opportunity came up. I'm not surprised that you took that opportunity. Now, let's shift the conversation and talk about how you got involved with St. Louis Music and mm -hmm. uh, P. Moriad, the brand. Okay. I, I was hoping you would ask me that. <laughs> uh, because you know i will i will take uh, every opportunity that anyone asks about how i got into music and then how i got into this job and mention the same person twice um, because it's not often that you have someone that changes the trajectory of your life twice right um and that is that's exactly what happened so i was i was winding down uh, my career in the air force band and a lot of a lot of bandsmen will, um, you know, get a, a government services job on base. Maybe they're or maybe they work for the Veterans Administration, or you know, maybe they they go to work on base because you get used to the convenience, you get used to the security, and it's it, it, there's nothing wrong with that at all. Uh, great benefits, and you continue to serve. Mm -hmm. um, but that was not what I wanted. I was ready for something different. I loved the Air Force. I loved serving. I loved playing all over the world. I was ready to not work for the government anymore. And so I'm thinking, I really have no idea what I want to be when I grow up. <laughs> um, you know, up until, you know, from the time I was 15 to the time I was 44, I knew exactly what I wanted to do. Okay. Yeah. And at age 44, 43, 44, I'm going, well, hmm, I got to figure something out for the next 20 years. Well. And I had met up with my old high school teacher, John Richardson. Uh, he had, had gone into the retail industry and then the wholesale industry and worked for a couple of different uh, companies, a couple of different manufacturers. And I'd run into him at an international trombone guild festival and where we were the backing the backing uh band for some trombone artists and was just talking to him and kind of feeling out what he did and that that kind of came into my mind and so i sent him a message and i said hey man is there anything like in this industry that i could do could i get involved and he was like hey man call me in six months <laughs> Okay, 
So he was, he was changing companies. So I called him and he said, yeah, he said, there might be something with St. Louis music. Um, he said, we have a, but he said, I don't know what it is yet. Uh, it's a growing company. Um, a lot of growth that particular year. He said, let me, let me talk to a couple folks and I'll get back in touch with you. And so he did. And, uh, I interviewed, uh, my first interview, I had just finished up a gig in Miyazaki, Japan and interviewed from a hotel room, uh, with our chief operating officer and had a great, you know, great conversation. And so I was kind of on a track on track to go into perhaps the more of the sales side. And then he put me in touch with uh, our senior vice president of marketing, AKA the boss of all the brand managers, uh, Craig Denny, uh, who was the P Marriott brand manager and is largely responsible for the success of P Marriott in North America. You know, Craig is just, it's, he's devoted the balance of his career to promoting the brand. And he had promoted in the company and you know was it's a full-time job being a brand manager so he was doing that he was also vice president of marketing vice president of band and orchestra so just a tremendous amount on his plate and so i interviewed with him and as it turns out he's also a fine read player uh uh, you know master's degree in clarinet from depaul and we kind of hit it off as musicians and and he's he's thinking i don't think sales for you i'm thinking brand management i'm thinking you know we need a subject matter expert etc and so they had some conversations and um i so i left japan landed back in the states we had a contract to build a house i still didn't have a job uh, outside of my retirement so it was a major leap of faith and shortly after we got home uh, you know, was living in my brother-in-law's basement. Uh, I got a call from Craig and said, we'd like to have one more interview. And so I interviewed with Craig. I interviewed with John, my old high school saxophone teacher and, uh, our chief operating officer. And an hour later, they made me the job offer. That's incredible. <laughs> totally. It was like, I mean, total miracle. Yeah. Uh, just divine, absolute divine pathway. Um, so I found myself in a, you know, in a, in a career now where I'm advancing the saxophone, uh, the brand and, you know, in North America and getting to travel a bit and, you know, meet folks from all over the world. So no one was more surprised or more blessed than me. Yeah. Well, you, you have also been instrumental in my Pimoriat journey. I became a Pimoriat artist. I believe it's two years ago now and correct Pimoriat's saxophones for more than 12 years i think almost 15 years now and my first Pimoriat saxophone ended up in my hand because i had a really unfortunate thing happen to me two weeks before i was supposed to head off to berkeley college of music in boston i was robbed in a taxi in trinidad and my saxophone was stolen my my wallet everything and so the saxophone community and the music community in Trinidad came together and uh purchased uh, a saxophone for me i didn't have i left trinidad without the saxophone and they shipped it to berkeley uh and so i got my first primarad saxophone during my very first semester at berkeley and i was you know incredibly overjoyed i mean you know how expensive instrument to be and i think p moriad became the option that they chose because i was going to study music professionally wanted to give me a a a great instrument but that was also an affordable instrument so i think let's shift the conversation and talk about the instruments themselves Mm -hmm. i have loved p moriad instruments for a long time it really helped me shape the sound that i have on on the saxophone and one of the things that drew me to it was the fact that it's so affordable. So let's mm-hmm. talk about, you know, this unique selling point of Primariat instrument, the affordability, and let's talk about, I'll talk about the range of the instrument, uh, et cetera. Sure thing. Um, well, I had, when I got the job, the last time I had played a Primariat, 
had been well over 10 years ago, 10 or 12 years ago. And I remember thinking, huh, that's different. It's different. You know, I had always played Selmer or Yamaha. And I remember thinking that's different. And I, then I didn't, I didn't have another thought about them until I got to Japan, still in the Air Force band. And there was a P. Marriott artist in the Air Force bands uh, named Ricky Swum. And Ricky is, is in another band now, but I was essentially Ricky's replacement. And I went to uh, his final gig in Japan at this little little curry restaurant just off base, and he sounded fantastic. And he sounded fantastic because Ricky's a fantastic musician. We'll, we'll start there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but his saxophone was helping. And I'm like, man, what is that? And it was unlacquered and raw looking. He's like, it's a P. Marriott. I was like, I remember those. And so I, I played it a little bit. And then once again, I didn't think of it anymore until I got the job. And um, first week on the job, Craig sent me a palette with 14 instruments on it. <laughs> and my job was to play through them all. And so I did that. I played through every one. I went to, excuse me, I went to St. Louis Music, um, then, you know, a couple weeks in, played another 14 or 15 saxophones, went to SaxQuest, played all of the competitors' saxophones, and was just, I was blown away. I couldn't believe how much fun and free-blowing uh, the saxophones had been to play. And I started looking at what they cost, what the retail is, versus, say, you know, some of our competitors. And I was like, why doesn't, why don't all saxophone players play these? Classical, concert, jazz, commercial, rock, music theater. Why isn't everyone playing these? You could sell your extraordinarily high-priced saxophone and probably buy two, uh, you know, uh, instruments that are going to do, that are, that are fantastic. So immediately I was thinking, okay, the price point, the affordability, the product support, the parts availability, all of those things that make owning something easy, uh, P. Marriott had. And I know that when college, you know, kids going to college, you know, you've got tuition, room and board. You know, a lot of times mom and dad are still helping out with that kind of stuff. Yeah. Or if you're a professional musician who say you're primarily an alto player, or you're primarily a tenor player, but you need to own other saxophones because you're a working musician. Well, it's really hard to do that when, you know, the newest, latest competitor's tenor sax costs $11,000. Uh, you know, or a Barry Sachs cost 15000 I mean, it's just uh, these absurd prices. Yeah, I know a lot of people who go into debt getting instruments. Yes, yes. And I mean, and you've got to play a lot of gigs to pay off an $11,000 tenor saxophone. Uh, I mean, that's a lot of weddings. Yeah. So, <laughs> uh, so I was just initially attracted to the variety of lacquers, the variety of finishes, the variety of body tubes the variety of construction, the variety of tone hole options um, across the board at reasonable price points. And as I got into it, I discovered that P. Marriott is the only saxophone manufacturer that makes a full family of saxophones. Okay. And, and what I mean, yeah, okay, yeah. Sopranino okay. to bass. Okay. And okay. sure, there are other companies that do that. Selmer makes a Sopranino. Selmer makes a base. Um, you know, there are, you know, they, they also do that. But when I say a full family, Marriott makes a Sopranino to a base. We make low A and low B flat baritones. So I, I can't think of anyone else that's making a low B flat berry, which is how all berry saxes used to be. We also have a curved soprano. We have straight soprano with two necks, one neck, or solid piece. So it's a true uh, full complement. You want raw lacquer, cognac lacquer, gold lacquer, dark lacquer, black nickel finish. Um, you know, we offer a, a raw brass, all of those things in various instruments uh, from sopranino to bass 
And we also have, you know, a line of, of rolled tone hole instruments, uh, the PMX series. So PMXA would be alto, PMXT would be tenor. And those are rolled tone hole instruments, which have a completely different bore size and shape than what most saxophones do. So, you know, Selmers obviously are a French bore. Yamaha follows French bore. Yanagasawa, French bore. And those are great instruments. I'm not disparaging them. But uh, Marriott, the rolled tone hole, they have a Germanic bore. So it's going to be a larger taper as you go down. And then with those rolled tone holes, um, you have an instrument that is just, it's very free blowing. And I, I equate it to, you know, a late 1960s era muscle car. It's just, it's going to roar out of the gates. Uh, it, it's a whole different feel you know, from your, from your face forward on that instrument. Uh, just surface area for the, for the, for the, the pads. Just sit again. Mm -hmm. okay. So a rolled tone hole instrument is going to be a lot more forgiving in terms of if it gets knocked in the case or gets knocked over because when that tone hole is drawn and then rolled, it creates a lot fatter area for that pad to sit. Right. It also creates a shorter tone hole so that the, the air and that sound have less distance to travel to get out. And the roll tone hole instruments also have a larger bow. They have a larger bell that's flared. And so if, if you've ever had anyone that's ever played a Kyleworth or a cuff, really even closer to a cuff Germanic instrument, that's going to be more um, of the feel. Even even like some of the old Kings, okay. uh, like the King Super 20, which was a big bore instrument, um, you know, you play down to a, a, a low B flat on one of those, you're going to feel the bottoms of your feet rattle. <laughs> so that's that was I was so blown away by just how different they play yeah. um, so much. So to the point, the, the saxophones, you know, that you see sitting behind me, I sold my Selmer alto that i had for almost 30 years and bought a p marriott i sold my selmer reference 54 tenor that i had for 20 years 22 years and bought a p marriott roll tone hole tenor i sold my low b flat mark six berry and now i'm playing a p marriott low b flat berry um to the point that i even you know i got rid of the flute that i had i play a p marriott flute also so it, it was more than just a job for me. It became, you know, a brand and an instrument that I truly believed in. And if I believe in it, I'm going to play it and I'm going to take it on gigs. So that's, you know, that's, that's kind of my, my P Marriott bit, as uh, it were. Amazing. Now, what new instruments uh, have P Marriott been, been working on to bring to the market as well as accessories? Sure thing. So last year, <clears throat> I'm sorry, not last year, this year, it just feels like last year. Uh, but this spring at NAM, we introduced two new saxophones, uh, the 20th anniversary edition saxophone, which is black nickel plated, uh, gold brass keys, a gold wash bell, and it has the Kirk Whalum signature neck. Nice. with the the added bracing on the tenor not the alto just the tenor and that is a rolled tone hole instrument that is on the 66 and 67 chassis comes from the same exact factory um, it just has special engraving it's a beautiful horn and so that was uh, debuted at nam with great success and um, kirk whalem that is now his go-to horn so he is playing that one and loves it um, simply because that that horn suits him for the way that you know that Kirk plays very open very relaxed you know very lyrical and so that that horn works for him we also introduced something a, a saxophone that no one else has anything like it and that is the beatbox sax okay so if any of your listeners follow Derek Brown yeah and beatbox sax Derek has been a Marriott artist for a very long time, and he pretty much Frankensteined his System 76. He added, you know, a rib along the bell 
that he could scrape and smack with rings on his fingers. He had added some extra bracing at the bottom of the bell so he could bang his saxophone on the ground. (laughs) He turned the clothing guard into a weiro. He added a bunch of loose screws, uh, not a weiro, a vibra slap, Mm -hmm. sorry, so that he could hit it and get the vibra slap. Um, he took, he took most of the thumb hook off and then took a file and filed big gouges in what was left of the thumb hook so that he could scrape it like a weiro. Uh, he soldered on a bunch of extra key work in his left hand so that he can play from a G above the staff to an altissimo G chromatically with one hand. Okay. Wow. So that he's doing... Uh, other stuff Mm. with his right hand. And then, of course, all of his slap-tonguing technique. Uh, So he asked P. Marriott, can you make one like this? (laughs) And they did. Wow. So now you can buy a System 76 tenor sax that, you know, has the extra ribbing on the bell. It has the extra bracing on the bow. Uh, The pants guard comes loose on one end, so it can be a vibra slap. The Wiro is built in. Uh, it essentially has another F sharp key, high F sharp key that you play with the left hand so that you can play an octave uh, with one hand. Um, the, the low B flat key is cut differently so you can grab the instrument. If you've got really big hand, you can grab it right around the middle and then smack it and hit it with your right hand. So now it's made and um that's scary (laughs) the the cool thing about derek you know is he other than just he's an amazing musician and he's just a sweetheart of a human being just one of the best people you'll ever meet um he's not territorial in his knowledge he is willing to share and tell people this is how you do this this is how you do this you know he doesn't try and keep it this closely guarded secret so he recorded, he wrote 20 etudes just for the beatbox sax, and he released them all. Or he's releasing them all for free. Wow. And so every week on P. Marriott North America Facebook page, you can watch Derek Brown playing beginner etudes with slap tongue techniques on his saxophone. So it's pretty cool. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. Now, you mentioned... Um the innovation of these two new instruments, are there any specific accessories that that you're working on to support these new instruments? Uh, Sure, there are. Um, So we have uh, when, so Kirk, when Kirk Whalum came over to Marriott, he asked them to make a special silver-plated neck with extra bracing. And so they did and then decided we're going to mass produce this and when i say mass produce when you're talking silver plated saxophone neck we're not talking orders in the thousands or even orders in the hundreds we're talking orders in the tens um, just because it's very specific uh, to certain players you know and the, the the raw materials are expensive so but again we try and keep it at a price where folks can afford it so we have the kirk whalem signature neck that will fit any of the rolled tone hole tenor saxes. Okay. Um, kind of in the future, what we're what we're looking at is uh, a new line of cases called the P Marriott Touring Case, which you know is an ABS molded body with an you know an interior that's molded. Obviously, it's going to fit alto or tenor, okay. lumbar support, backpack straps, interior compartments. And what's really unique about the P. Marriott uh, touring case is it's made by the eminent luggage company in Taiwan. So it's actually made by a luggage company. So the whole mindset in terms of production, uh, hinges, protection, durability tests, drop tests is all, is all different. So uh, that's, that's pretty cool. We're hoping to get those released at NAMM. And, you know, Marriott is continuing to expand its woodwind line and, and push that. So we, we have Grenadilla clarinets. 
but they're you know currently we offer them in, in just standard your b flat soprano clarinet but last week i was able to put my hands on a prototype a clarinet so you know for for what i call real clarinetists uh <laughs> that you know that need a matching b flat and a set that is in the works and um craig is a my boss is a far better clarinetist than i am so he kind of put it through its paces and it's it's going to be fantastic um and we're also uh, developing a grenadilla piccolo with silver key work so an actual professional wooden piccolo to match the p marriott you know professional the sterling flutes so not just saxophones flutes clarinets trumpets and soon to be piccolos as well amazing no you mentioned that the company that you're working with to develop the prototype touring case is in Taiwan. I think there's sometimes confusion around where the P. Moriad uh, factories are, mm -hmm. the warehouses, so the, produ the production houses. So can you clear that up for us? Sure. P. Moriad is exclusively handcrafted in Taiwan. Gotcha. Yep, they are handcrafted in Taiwan. Not and Pardon? Not France, not Japan. Nope, not France, not Japan, uh, not China. They are handcrafted in Taiwan. And yes, they were named after, you know, Paul Marriott, who was a, a French band leader kind of in the 1960s, 1970s. And I, I believe the, the how that name came about is the owner, creator of P. Marriott, Alex Shea, in in taiwan was a was a big fan you know loved the music loved that that whole era so that is how he arrived at that name but no they are they are taiwanese through and through so much so that on the the back of the instrument right just just below your thumb hook the logo actually has the shape of the island of taiwan okay i actually never noticed that mm -hmm. so i have a question about the the touring case Mm -hmm. uh, is it just a new case for single saxophones or as familiar at any point in time going to be developing a case for multiple saxophones at this time you know the touring case is just for alto and just for tenor gotcha. yeah just for alto just for tenor and you know it's it's definitely a a slow roll into that yeah. excuse me simply because there are there are so many great case manufacturers already and we're we're hoping you know to to offer this as an alternative you know once again at a price point that is affordable right. uh, because there are there are case manufacturers in america britain uh the, you know that have true custom cases but you know you you may be talking well over a thousand dollars for some of those yeah. and we're trying to kind of stay true to our principles of quality instruments at price points that musicians can afford. Right. And that's where we're, we're trying to keep this touring case for sure. Right. Okay. That makes sense. No, when you talk about quality, I have been to my repairman so many times and lots of repairmen would, would probably argue that the quality or the value of an instrument is also wrapped up in its resale value. Mm -hmm. uh, would you mind talking about that a little bit? Sure. And, you know, resale value is, it's an art and a science uh, in the sense that it does, it does tend to vary on your region. It varies on the condition of the horn. Um, it varies on, you know, is it city miles or highway miles uh, on the, on that instrument. So the resale value you know, one advantage that our competitors do have, you know, Selmer has been around for, you know, over 100 years. Um, Yamaha has been around saxophones for decades. So those instruments have a long history where you can track that resale value. Mm -hmm. How is it holding it? You know, Marriott, we just celebrated our 20th year, which is pretty young in the saxophone world. So at this point, the resale value is very, very strong. 
but there just aren't as many used P. Marriott saxophones in the used instrument marketplace as there are other brands simply because of, you know, the longevity of those other brands. You know, as I, as I mentioned, there are saxophone specialty shops um, across America uh, from, you know, the Northeast to the Midwest. Um, and, I, and I don't want to name any of them because I'm afraid I'll forget one and then upset somebody. But there are a number of saxophone specialty shops in America, all of whom are selling used P. Marriott's um, online and in their stores. And the prices are very, very competitive. Um, what's nice is a used P. Marriott is still going to be at an affordable price, um, whereas, you know, there's some of our, our mythical competitors, you know, where, you know, I'm seeing prices of almost $20,000 right. for, for an instrument that's 50 years old, right. Right. 60 years old. So... I get it. Yeah. It's just, yes, they, my perception based on, you know, on research that anyone can do, anyone can, you know, go do internet research is that they do indeed hold their value. Right. And that is, and part of that value piece for, for any used instrument is going to be parts availability. Hmm. Specifically, you mentioned going to your repairman or your repair technician, as it were, and, you know, that is, that's part of the, the nuts and bolts of this job is I deal with repair techs from across the country, from brick and mortar music stores to our national accounts. And it's always, hey, can I get parts for this? Can I get parts for this? Can I get parts for this? And the answer is yes. And, you know, if you have an instrument that you cannot get parts for, I can't help but think inherently its value is going to go down uh, a little bit eventually. Because if folks know, hey, I can't get parts for this, are they going to buy it? Yeah, sure, some folks will. But, you know, a, a working musician that's going to have their horn in the shop regularly as a result of use yeah. is going to want, you know, is going to want something that has product support. And we definitely do. That makes sense. Ben, it's, it's been such a pleasure chatting with you. And it's really a dream come true. I never thought one day that when I got my first P. Marriott saxophone, I would someday be sitting here with the North American brand manager <laughs> talking about the... You are too kind. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to shift the conversation and really wrap up the conversation. Yep, no problem. Putting the focus back on, on you. And I like to wrap up each episode with a, a bit of a rapid fire game. Let's end with the three, two, one uh, game. So I'd like you to share three saxophones that have been influential in your development two albums and one piece of advice for the audience that's unfair jesse because there are just too many good albums out there <laughs> I, hear you. I hear you that's there's there's <laughs> too many there's too many good albums okay so my three most influential saxophone players are going to be charlie parker jerry mulligan and lenny pickett okay all right, amazing. Because they each they each influence me in different ways on on different instruments. Um, there's, in my opinion, no one more melodic and uh, pleasant than Jerry Mulligan, while also at the same time being a technical beast. Mm -hmm. um, Charlie Parker changed the jazz vocabulary for every instrument, forever. Right. Um, so, you know, my Omni book from 1993 is still right over there in that shelf and i still get it out um when i'm getting my head back into the jazz space and you know lenny pick if you, you don't own an omni book if it's if it doesn't have some tears and the the the, the, the spine is a bit you know broken that's right the cover of mine is gone <laughs> right it's full of coffee stains and it's highlighted throughout right. and it's yeah it's yellow <laughs> uh, and, uh, the other person I mentioned was Lenny Pickett. Yeah. You know, I, I, you know, I was 13, 14 years old. The first time I heard Lenny Pickett on Saturday night live yeah. and it was like, man, I want to play like that. And at age 46, I hear Lenny and I still say, man, I want to play like that. That's incredible. So, yep. What about two? Uh, 
Oh, that, that, this is so hard. <laughs> this is so hard. But I think if, if I had to pick the two albums that I've listened to the most in my career, the most in my life, it's going to be Tower of Power Live and in Living Color, 1976 mm-hmm. in Sacramento. Uh, that Lenny Pickett thing. And then Frank Sinatra with Count Basie live at the Sands. Okay. That is the definition of swing. Yeah, man. Okay. Two good ones. And would you please leave the saxophone community with Mm. some advice? Absolutely. Um, Music business. Music business is two words. I hear young people say, I want to go into the music business. Or I hear folks who are already established in the retail wholesale side of things say, I'm in the music business. And there's two words to that phrase that have two meanings to those two different pools of people. For the young person coming up or even the established musician who's looking to get more work, to get more gigs, to develop another income stream, realize you have to be adept at the music business side because you're not going to support yourself just by playing gigs, period. Even the best Broadway musicians and those guys and gals are the best and they make good money. They also typically have a teaching load or they're doing arranging. They're doing writing. You know, is there a better read player than Dan Higgins? who's been on every soundtrack ever. Dan also teaches and arranges. So he's very adept at that business side. Mm -hmm. You know, unfortunately or fortunately, you've got to be up on social media. You've got to know how to do that. You have to network yourself as a person. So for those people that are primarily players, music, business, and you've got to do that. Yeah, yeah. And for folks on the flip side, uh, where I am now in the retail wholesale side, mm-hmm. as my boss, Craig, says regularly, don't forget it's music business. And yes, we spend a lot of time. I spent a lot of time building spreadsheets now, right. you know, developing pricing developing marketing strategies, developing talking points, all of these things needed to sell instruments, to promote the brand. However, music, business. The other piece of the business is music. We exist to put instruments in the hands of players, students, parents. Music is supposed to be fun. Right. Band is supposed to be fun. Orchestra is supposed to be fun. And if we lose sight of the why, why are we building these spreadsheets? Why are we creating a price point? Why are we creating this Facebook post? It's all to help people make music. So my piece of advice, music business is two words. Music business is two words. That's a t-shirt. <laughs> yeah, music business is two words. Love and, it. And, and the ancillary part of that, and I promise this is the last, um, I went to a, this year, I went to a, a master class that Jeff Coffin mm-hmm. did at the University of Kentucky. And I'm not going to use the exact words, but basically he got that same question from a young person at the University of Kentucky. You know, what's your one piece of advice? And Jeff basically said, don't be a jerk. (laughs) (laughs) Well, meaning there's going to be great players on every gig Mm. and great players who are also nice people tend to get the call back. Right. (laughs) And in the music retail business, there are a lot of brilliant business folks the brilliant business folks who are also really nice people mm-hmm. tend to develop those lasting relationships. Yeah, it's so relationships. Yeah. Yep. And so the, the part of the music business, whatever side you're on, don't be a jerk. 
thanks so much for that. That really resonates with me. And I'm excited to continue building this relationship uh, with you. It's such a pleasure getting to, to know more about your journey. And I hope that this conversation, if you're listening, was helpful for you in you taking more ground in your personal, professional journeys and, and, and even considering Pimoriat uh, instruments as a possible option for you, whether you're in college or you're professional looking to, to, to find new options. Thank you so much. Where can we keep in contact with you, Jeremiah, and even find more about P. Marriott Instruments? Well, you can you can always visit uh, pmarriottmusic.com, which is the official P. Marriott website, um, and that is that is controlled and owned by our our overseas partner. So, St. Louis Music, we do not own P. Marriott. We have exclusive distribution rights um, in North America. So you can always visit you know, pmarriottmusic.com. There's an inquiries page. And if you're in North America and you have an inquiry uh, about anything P. Marriott, where can I find a dealer? Where can I try horns? You know, I dropped my saxophone and I need a new low B flat B key guard. Uh, if you go to that inquiry, um, the person, my contact overseas that takes those inquiries, they get sent directly to me. So it's an actual human being yeah. named Jeremiah that will answer those inquiries and that's you know that's probably the best way uh to get through to me okay amazing thanks so much for listening and i hope you listen to the next episode jeremiah thanks so much for your time and i'll catch you in the next episode sounds good thank you jesse okay